Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the March 5, 2023 session, focusing on Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Promise kept. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm David Adams. And I'm Burt Montgomery. We are uh, so happy to have David Adams back with us again. Welcome back, David. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Daniel is still away. He did not plan to be away this week, but he has had a, something come up uh, that he really needed to attend to. And, uh, and so we will miss him again, but look forward to having him back uh, in a coming episode. Now, I will confess to you that I talk to myself. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I answer myself. I might, but most of the time, it's simply you know self talk. Um, and and if you've ever heard about this phrase self talk, it's a thing, right? We mm -hmm. most of us talk to ourselves, uh, and it may be in the form of either things we say that are positive, encouraging ourselves to get through something, or that we can do it. Yeah, we can solve this problem. I can learn this. I can do this. Or it could be negative, right? I, you know, I can't do this. I can't learn this. I, nothing ever works out for me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and so we have this positive or negative self-talk that we do. Because we are in Lent, and a practice of Lent is to reflect on how we both receive grace and give grace to others, I'm wondering if there's any bit of self-talk that you might do that helps you with, you know, either receiving or giving grace. Yeah, I, I've i had a couple of experiences uh, over the last 15 or 20 years that have really echoed a phrase from a Bob Dylan song and have taken on new meaning for me. And, and now when I'm in a situation, I say this to myself. And that is a Bob Dylan song, Forever Young, that says, May you always do for others and let others do for you. Mm. And that's very hard for someone who grew up white, middle-class, Protestant, Protestant work ethic, uh, don't take charity, all this kind of stuff, to be wanting to do things for people. And then when somebody is doing something for me, no, 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 no. And, and I've had to, there were a couple of times when I could not do something and I had to accept the grace of someone else. Mm. And, and that can't, line came to my, my mind. And it happened two or three more times over the last 15 to 20 years, So such that now when I get in that moment, e either I know something's going to happen and nobody's in front of me and I say it out loud, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. I, or it's in my head, <laughs> saying it in my head, let others do for you. And it's a, it's a humbling thing, but it it does change how I relate to others not just being able to receive something from them, but then also how I treat others who I'm giving to, that this is a, a two-way street. So yeah, I yeah. do some self-talk. Yeah. Lately, I've been in a season um, in which I am saying to myself often, stop and listen, stop and listen. And sometimes that is listen to yourself. I've been kind of doing some self-discovery exercises and learning more about myself. And so sometimes it's about listening to myself. Sometimes like I can, I'll catch myself getting mad at something somebody else is saying that I disagree with. And I call that to mind, stop and listen. Doesn't mean I have to agree with everything, but stop and listen, stop and listen. Um, and then sometimes it's, it's we we live in a world where everything is just so 
busy all the time and we've got constant notifications and and so sometimes it's just stop and listen and it, I'm trying to listen to the created world around me that and kind of giving thanks for what that is. And so listening has required me to slow down. And I think any kind of slowing down in our production crazed society um, is an act of grace. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a couple, so I'm trying to decide which one, but they'll appeal to different people. One of them, I think, was attributed to Plato way back in the day. I'm not sure. But the paraphrase, it's saying, be kind. Everyone else is fighting a hard battle. Mm-hmm. You know, to try to understand people and give everyone a sense of grace. And whenever I get frustrated with people, I want to say that to myself because it makes it a lot easier to let go of the frustration. But the other one is even simpler than that. It's, there is no water. And... <laughs> I remember saying that to somebody who was pastoring a church in Campbellsburg and having troubles one day. And uh, the whole idea was that things get in our path that would make it difficult for us to be everything God wants us to be in a situation. They're distractions like, say, water on a golf course that you have to hit a ball over or something. And when you're really doing what you're called to do and being who you're called to be, the water isn't there. You know, There is no water. There's just what God has put in front of you, you know, called you to do. Well, I could hear that pastor saying thanks right now. For me, it's very similar to the Plato thing. Um, I, you know, I find myself reminding myself that, um, especially when other people are being particularly annoying or doing something I think is selfish or mean or hurtful or, or whatever, that I don't know what they're going through. You know, they may have a relative in the hospital. They may be dealing with their own health issue. They might have had to break up or some relationship crumble or maybe somebody's being terrible to them. I mean, it's, you, you just don't know. And it helps me, even though I don't know, to offer grace, to give space for that. And, and even maybe to, for me as a person to respond, to not overreact, you know, to, to have some sense of, of grace in, in how I respond. Well, however you talk to yourself, and hopefully you don't answer, but if you do, that's okay. I hope that we all can find some of these ways, and maybe some of them come from Scripture, right, that help us to repeat to ourselves to live and practice ways of both receiving grace and giving grace. Uh, We've got an interesting text. We're still in Romans today, and uh, Bert, would you help us get started? Yeah. Paul asks, what shall we say then about Abraham, the father of our faith? What was his experience? That's in the very first verse of today's lectionary text from Paul's letter to the Romans. That's from the Good News Bible, which is also today's English translation, but since it's almost 50 years old, is it still today's English translation? Uh, I'll let I'll let scholars answer that, but it's still a good translation, I think. But anyway, as it turns out, what shall we say then about Abraham, the father of our faith? Paul's setting himself up. As it turns out, Paul has a lot to say about Abraham, the father of our faith, as he does about most things. I appreciate Paul's asking us at the outset, what shall we say about Father Abraham and his experience? Because I'd like to accept that invitation and say a few things about Abe myself. Like how, as a kid, I learned to sing Father Abraham, 
And if you're a Protestant, you know this song. If you're a kid growing up in a Protestant church, you know the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. You do your right arm, your left arm, you turn around, shake your head, and all kinds of fun stuff. But then I grew up, and I learned that we weren't supposed to take that song literally. I mean, while it obviously meant that I am a child of Father Abraham, even though I am not of Jewish ancestry, and so are all my white Protestant friends I grew up with, but the so are you part didn't apply to my Catholic neighbors. And I grew up in Louisiana, and all my neighbors were Catholic. And it certainly didn't apply to my Muslim or Jewish neighbors, which always seemed odd to me, since both the Arabic and Hebrew people come directly from Abraham's seed, and I didn't. Now, I said as much about that one time publicly, about singing Father Abraham and his many sons, how I'm one of them and so are you, and I was looking at my Jewish friends, looking at my Muslims' friends, and hoping we would all just praise the Lord and turn around and do our arms and all that stuff. And a well-meaning Baptist preacher in the same county as I was at the time invited me to lunch, his treat, uh, to help correct my mistake. Now, my error came essentially down to this. Forget the Muslims, he said, because that's not even up for discussion. Apparently, he never read Genesis and about Abe's firstborn son named Ishmael and the nations from Ishmael that God blesses. Uh, but anyway, that's not up for discussion, he said. No, the, the, he was mostly concerned that I mistakenly assumed that the God of the Jews was the same God of Abraham, who is the same God of Christianity that I misunderstood our holy scriptures, because while Jesus is God incarnate, and God incarnate is the God of Abraham, the maker of heaven and earth, the God worshiped so beautifully and intimately in the Psalms, and God so preached so powerfully by the prophets, and pointed to by Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed his great rich faith tradition as his own. No, 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 this pastor said. Nevertheless, the Jews never knew the actual one true real God, and they worshiped some false god of their own creation. So for me to suggest that the Jews worship the God of Abraham was even more blasphemous than saying the Muslims do. And I just sat stunned because I always thought Abraham was Jewish. But who knew? Anyway, the pastor was very who was very Pauline in his theology. Uh, would often say, not just to me, but in many of his sermons that I would listen to from time to time, see what's going on, but Paul says, but Paul says, but Paul says, and he would say, but Paul says more than he would say, Jesus says in this gospel, or, or the golden rule says, or here's the Beatitudes, or even the Ten Commandments, which brings me back around to our text. I know you're awaiting me get around back to this text. That, that pastor, like so many I know, they love to get into the windy, twisted roads of Paul's logic, and I think they missed the big picture. On this podcast, we often say we need to do. We need to remember what Paul himself says: "Don't follow me. <laughs> we see through a glass darkly. I'm working it out with fear and trembling, and so on and so on." Many people miss that when Paul says those things. And in today's text, we can get lost following Paul's connecting the dots, making things so complicated, or get too focused on getting down into the specifics of what this means when connected to that, 
that we miss the whole picture and we 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 forget the big that Paul in doing his thing which does drive me nuts because I'm a big pictured guy to begin with but Paul does his thing and he finally gets around to telling us God's bigger which Paul tends to get around to eventually but he does so takes so long to get to it we all get bogged down in the other stuff like how those of us who harp on faith over works so that good works won't get you into heaven, faith gets you into heaven because of Paul. When we say those things, we we still boil everything down to a work or a law that must be followed a certain way, or if not done the right way, will be punished, right? You must be worded a certain way, believe and confessed and professed this certain agreement, or then you pay the punishment. You've broken the rule. You've broken the law. Yet Paul draws from Abraham's faith, and that Abraham trusts in God even when Abraham can't fathom how any of this is going to happen. And God is the one who makes us righteous, who made Abraham righteous and makes us righteous, not because we can understand it or explain it or see it, but simply trusting God and doing it anyway as Abraham did. So when we try to use Paul to justify limiting God's grace, not to mention limiting the ancestral lineage of Father Abraham, are we not living by the law, a rule that we can follow to reward ourselves and punish everyone else? I think we do, which is what brings us around to, we get to the end of this passage, verse 15, where there is no law, there can be no violation. Paul says. Faith over law, right? So if we let go of the law, then we can't hold each other into violation of the law. And maybe as we're in Lent, the season of self-reflection, the season of of discernment, the season of seeking, letting go of stuff that, that binds us so we can be free to the work of the Spirit, maybe the season of Lent invites us through this text to wrestle with what does it mean to have faith over the law? Because I believe Paul points to a bigger God and a bigger lineage of Father Abraham. Because Father Abraham indeed had many sons and many daughters. And many sons and daughters, uh, Father Abraham, I am one of them, and I don't get to choose, and I don't set the rules as to decide who else is. You are or you aren't. So let's just praise the Lord. Now, I don't know what y'all will say about this text, but hey, that's what I had to say about Abraham, the father of our faith, and Paul. Yeah, and this is an interesting thing about Paul that sometimes we fail to notice, and especially in Romans, because Paul was fighting a hard battle that day. Go back to what I said earlier. He's just come off of writing things to the church in Galatia. He's looked at as a wacko who just doesn't understand Jewish faith or Gentile faith and can't bring the two together and can't reconcile them. And he's got to prove himself to people who are struggling with that in the midst of a pretty serious fight with Peter, you know, over, can you be a Christian if you're a Gentile or not? What do you have to do to qualify here to be part of this new emerging faith that they may not have even been calling Christian yet or just starting to? 
And so he is just tying himself up in knots, trying to explain things and trying to bring both sides together. And trying to do that using terminology and concepts that he got from the older faith, Judaism. And sometimes those things just didn't fit together well. So he really struggled sometimes to explain some of these things. And this passage and the one we talk about next week are really good examples of where he's struggling. He's honestly struggling. He's trying to make the best of it, but he's struggling to explain something that's very complicated in the way that a not-so-complicated audience can really understand. And it's hard to land that. By the way, when you're struggling this way is you leave so many openings for people who want to take advantage of the text to make it say what they want it to say. You know, like, like the person you're talking about, well, Paul says... And, you know, you read enough, Paul, you can make up just about anything. This is true. Yep. And these true. passages especially, you're so open for that by talking about what constitutes righteousness and when is someone righteous. And even here, Paul's raising the idea that, well, Abraham might have been righteous before all this other stuff happened, before he went through these rituals, or where there is no law, there is no transgression, to which people will be going, well, let's have no laws then. This is great. You know, I, just, I can just ignore faith altogether and I'm covered. It's just difficult when you're dealing with that much, for lack of a better word, looseness in how you talk about things. It's difficult to land at a place that everyone can be comfortable and find their way and see themselves and what's going on in there. All too often, they're going to say they're going to find what they want to say other people should be doing and what they should be like and how they should be viewed by other people and how, of course, I'm okay and they're not. Yeah, David, and I think that part of the reason that we are so tempted to do those things with Paul's what Paul says is that we have such a need to identify who's in and who's out, who's on good terms and who's on bad terms, who gets it right and who gets it wrong, so that we can know if we are in and good and doing it right. I think that when we do that, we oversimplify. We, we try to make something digestible that was never really meant to be digestible but rather something to just guide us all on this complicated journey of life. Yeah, and maybe we can pick on Paul for doing something that we can't do very well either. It was very hard for Paul to say, well, this is just a mystery. I kind of think this, but let's explore our way together. Mm -hmm. We're not comfortable saying that either. We all want to have something we can say for ourselves you know, and a point of finger. We're not comfortable with open-ended questions and open-ended dialogue, or what they call a generous orthodoxy. We're not comfortable with that. Right. And I think that's what causes us to struggle with these things, because it's just somebody else's uncomfortable, non-generous orthodoxy. Right, right. It makes us more comfortable when we can measure something, or when something is complete and understood. It's hard to leave it to mystery. I, I kind of think about Paul and his letters to all the different churches. I, I think a lot in, in our denominational world today, but we do have individual churches, even within the same denomination, who can't get along, and then the denominations can't get along with other denominations, and they all will always 
go to Paul and find something in Paul that says, this is why we're breaking off from this denomination, or this is why we're breaking off from that church, which is still in our denomination, and we're going to lead a movement to kick them out, right? And, and, and this is why our denomination does it this way, and that denomination is wrong. And, and that denomination goes to Paul, and they've got things from Paul that say, this is what separates us from, from those heretics in that other group over there, right? All that kind of stuff. That's what Paul is dealing with all the time, isn't he? I mean, and, and David, that's what you're saying. You got all these different cultural groups, all these different um, age groups of, of different traditions, and they're merging and they're coming together and they're going separately. And and this group has always been told that group is out. And now some of them think they're in, and you know all that kind of stuff is going on now as it did when Paul was writing these letters. And yeah, it gets frustrating as all get out when you've got friends and family and connections in all these different groups and you're trying, and they're trying to ask you, why do you, why do you hang out with all these different people? And, and you're trying to withdraw the connections to get them to, to be a little bit bigger. And all they do is take your words and make it more smaller. And that drove Paul crazy. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, I think if we if we put it in our context, we see this happening in in Baptist denominations. We see it happening in Methodist denominations, Presbyterian denominations, local churches turning against their denomination because they've left the Bible or, or the Paul. And Paul's just dealing with all these same theological arguments, like you summarized earlier: who's in and who's out, <laughs> and law, and who gets to choose which law is the one that really counts more than the other, you know. And that's the wonder Paul just. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, he just busted out and said, I'm glad I didn't baptize you people. I'm glad I'm not involved <laughs> <Yes>. with this. Because <laughs> you're just a mess, you know? <laughs> That's how you could tell it drove him crazy because he even came out and admitted it at one point. <laughs> Paul's story, what he's going through here, what he's trying to write in the middle of, is very much our story still. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's designed. What Paul wants to do is make us all bigger, and yet we just keep needing to get smaller and more exclusionary, and we miss Paul's point altogether. Well, if I was going to add anything to what Paul's saying here that's more of the meta picture, and I don't know if this fits or not either, but this there's this idea that we come to faith, or God comes to us and leads us into faith, long before we ever recognize it or are recognized for it. It's an ongoing thing. It's God struggling with us for throughout our lives. And sometimes it gets recognized and sometimes it doesn't, you know, because who's doing the recognizing, you know, but God is still there working. And yeah. it's not up to us to recognize it. Yeah. I mean, it is up to us to recognize, but it's not up to us whether it counts or not. God's already done that. God's the one doing the counting. But I think yeah. it's all, behind all the stuff he's saying about Abraham, I think that thought's in the back of the head, saying mm -hmm. that you can see God working behind the scenes, and he's trying to find a way to say it that meshes with the way they already understand faith working out. And this is where Abraham's story gets so difficult for him to tell. Well, it, you know, Paul leads us into these conversations about you know, law and grace, and, and it gets convoluted, and <laughs> we find ourselves trying to help explain it and simplify it. In the same vein, preacher Nadia Boltz Weber also has taken a shot at explaining this. 
and and I really I like the way she comes at it because she draws a stark difference between, as she says, the law and the gospel, and the approaches that those engender. And she preached a sermon. It was for Reformation Sunday some time ago, but I want to read to you just a portion of her sermon as uh, as our closing because I think she gives us some real good ways to think about the difference between the law and the gospel, and we probably will hear ourselves in this. Here's what she says. She says, I offer you a way to spot the difference between the law and the gospel. You can tell the law because it is almost always an if-then proposition, an if-then proposition. If you follow all the rules in the Bible, then God will love you and you will be happy. If you lose 20 pounds, then you will be worthy to be loved. If you live a perfectly righteous, green, eco-lifestyle, then you will be worthy of taking up space on the planet, and so on and so forth. Under the law, there are only two options, pride and despair. When fulfilling the shoulds, is the only thing that determines our worthiness. We are either prideful about our ability to follow the rules compared to others, or we despair at our inability to perfectly do anything. Either way, it's still bondage. And that's why the gospel is different. The gospel is not an if-then proposition. It's more Wizard of Oz than that. The gospel is a because, 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 because proposition. Because God is our creator, and because we rebel against the idea of being created beings and insist on trying to be God for ourselves, and because God will not play by our rules, and because in the fullness of time when God had had enough of all that God became human in Jesus to show us who God really is. And because God, when God came to God's own and we received him not, and because God loves God's creation, God refuses for our sin and brokenness and inability to always do the right things to be the last word. Because God came to save and not to judge, and therefore, therefore you are saved by grace as a gift and not by the works of the law. And this truth will set you free like no self-help plan or healthy living or social justice work shoulds can ever do. Not a bad word. Something to think about. May we not be held bondage by pride or despair, but instead seek after the grace of God. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.